This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A day after the state announced a second person has tested positive for COVID-19, an advocacy group for the elderly is pressing for answers about contingency plans in the event the situation escalates here in the islands. Larry Geller is with the Kokua Council. He's speaking up on behalf of seniors. The Kokua Council is a senior advocacy organization, really old, I think founded in 1974. So our antenna is kind of buzzing for these kind of issues. And this coronavirus issue is going to hit us. It's unavoidable. It's going to be here. And while we read in the uh, uh, on Twitter and the newspaper, stock up on food and so forth, th- there are good tips, very valuable tips for most people. But there are certain people who can't line up at Costco to buy that toilet paper who uh, they may be homebound, they may have mobility issues like wheelchairs. These are the older folks. And there's another thing about that demographic. Not only can they not prepare, but they're the most vulnerable. Um, I've I've read on Twitter that the death rate is only 2%, so not to worry. It's not that bad. But for older adults, uh, I think the age range is 70 to 79. The death rate is 8%. And in the group older than that, it's 14.8%. I'm sure this number will change, but that's what I found on the internet. And that is a very high risk. Right, and they're, so they're vulnerable. One, they, they can't get to Costco to do, maybe just get to some of the, the basic preps, but they're the ones that are more likely to be affected. That's right. And also there's a group of people of all ages, but particularly older folks with immune disorders. I have an immune disorder. If I get the the uh, virus, I'm very likely dead, and I, I know this, but um, so if they if they announce a quarantine or a uh, stay-at-home situation, I'm going to stay at home, but I got my toilet paper anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> there's that, but do we even know how many people are stuck at home or in, the, uh, in condos needing oxygen? Do we even know how many people need to get to dialysis. If there's a quarantine declared, what happens to the folks who have to break the quarantine? Is th- are, th- are they going to be transported? There, there's so many questions. Do we need a registry of these people? The condos don't keep a list. Uh, as far as I know, the state has no list of people who need to get di- dialysis. Now, they can create one pretty easily, but have they? We don't know. So basically, what Kukua Council is asking First of all, the state needs to prepare for folks in nursing homes who have mobility issues like wheelchairs, uh, need oxygen, need home care, the caregiver's coming every day or something like that. What happens when the caregiver can't come? What about Meals on Wheels? There's hundreds of people on Meals on Wheels. How are they going to get fed if there are travel restrictions? So these are questions. Not only do we want to ask them, but we'd like to get the answers. What have you folks done to reach out to the state to get a handle on this? Well, we've spoken to agencies, you know, different agencies that serve seniors to try to find out uh, if they have been contacted. By and large, now, my research is not perfect, but by and large, they have not. So... Uh, and besides, the information has to get to the individuals, to the older folks and their families and to their caregivers. Do, will their caregivers even have masks? They're in short supply. Um, w- there's another issue which is more general even than seniors, but certainly applies to seniors, is let's say somebody comes down with the symptoms, coughing, high fever, over 104, and they say, uh-oh, I better be tested. They, uh, they'll probably call the doctor. They may, they may call 911. Who knows where they're going to call because they don't have instructions. But uh, their doctor may say, yeah, you need to be tested and say where that's going to happen. And they may get uh, confined to a hospital. This is not going to be uh, optional. If somebody has, shows the symptoms, uh, they'll end up in an isolation ward in a hospital. Uh, who pays for that? There was... A, Twitter is a great source of information, uh, if you believe it or not. But one one report was somebody was uh, confined to a hospital 
he had no choice. When he, he, he survived, he recovered, and when he came out, he had a bill for $3,725. It was charged to him, his hospital stay. So there are very fundamental questions like that that we need to know. And predictably, older folks are going to have the most issues. A young person may, who has toilet paper will be confined uh, at home. S just stay home for 14 days and re check in every day with DOH or they'll check with you, however it works. But the older folks, many of them don't even have computers and don't have these tips. They, they won't have supplies. They won't know how the Meals at Wheels are going to be delivered. Meals at Wheels may not know how they're going to do this yet. We have, at this point, had the gift of time, and we've watched to see what's happened in China and in Italy and in uh, Korea and in Japan and in San now San Francisco with that one cruise ship. And so, you know, uh, you know we see the cases spiking, the, the cases in Seattle, in the, the senior home, the elderly home, and, and that that, of course, is, you know, the red flag. You've seen it happen in the prison. So everybody's asking, okay, what are we doing here? Seattle's a great example of uh, something we don't want to go wrong in Hawaii. There was a nursing home just outside of Seattle, and uh, I think more than 50 residents and staff members showed signs of the virus, of infection. Right now, unless it's changed, vendors can't serve the facility. The Family members visited them, and the, you know, it's, you could be symptomless and still be a carrier of this virus. They visited, and then they went home to their own families and to the community. This virus could be spreading in the community uh, because of that nursing home incident. I think 10 people died. Right, and I think in that case, nobody knew of any travel uh, connection, and so they were like, okay, it's somewhere in the community, and somehow it got into this home for the elderly. Right, and the average age for people in nursing homes is 83, the most vulnerable, most, most likely to suffer consequences from the virus. Also, the vendors, they serve more than one nursing home. So they've gone, by now, they've gone to different nursing homes, and uh, I, I know the people in Seattle and Washington State are watching, but we have th at least the benefit of their experience, and we should be watching, and we should be prepared uh, I don't know exactly how that works. It probably is very complicated. But we have people in the Department of Health and the state government uh, who know. And we even, uh, Governor Ige assigned Lieutenant Governor Josh Green to be the uh, uh, coronavirus preparedness coordinator. Right, and we do have the emergency declaration. So the, the counties and the state government are are ready to do what they need to do. So we've got that in place, kind of like when the hurricane comes, right? They de declare an emergency because they know we're, it, we're gonna get hit and we want access to whatever federal funding is available to be able to respond. Right, uh, well, we've had hurricanes before, but we haven't had this before. So this, uh, we have to anticipate and make guesses, but we need the people with experience uh, w with emergencies, you know, to, to do that uh, work and communicate with each of us. Every concerned person should have access to this information. It sounds like you want reassurance. I wa yes, I want reassurance that they've done the, the preparation and that they've disseminated the information. Somebody on dialysis probably really wants to know how they're gonna get to their dialysis. They, they have to have it like you know, every couple days. And so the, let's say the quarantine is uh, declared and you need dialysis within two days, what happens? Right, and if you rely on the handy van, what happens? Exactly, exactly. We don't want to be promoting hysteria, but we are watching the rest of the world, and we just need to know how prepared are we. Yeah, we have to avoid hysteria, but you know I'll take hysteria if that's what it is, but I don't know what it takes to get People, there's so many people. This, the average person is, con uh, is a concern. What are we going to do? But we need to look specifically at the elderly population because they are the ones who will not necessarily recover. We're looking at very dire consequences for many people. This is not an easy task. This is not an easy thing we're asking of our state government. And I think uh, we recognize it, but we've got to ask these questions. We've got to demand the answers. All right. Well, Larry Geller, thank you very much. Thank you.
That was Larry Geller with Kokua Council expressing fears that our kapuna may have about potential impacts of the coronavirus COVID-19. The Kokua Council held a news conference this morning. Lieutenant jo- uh, Governor Josh Green was there uh, answering questions about testing. I'm going to speak to what always should happen. Okay. An individual like that should get tested. Uh, the challenge has been that the restrictions that were placed on us by the CDC up until last Monday prohibited any testing for any individuals that were not from the the countries that were most affected, China, South Korea, Italy, Iran, so on, uh, Japan. So that individual, in my opinion, should have been tested and that test should be expedited. We can do between 250 and 500 tests per week. We must do that. That's from our public sector testing. In just a few short days, we will be able to use our private labs, which just means that anytime you go to the labs, they can swab the back of your throat and get a strep test. This test is a little bit more invasive, not much more, requires a swab deep into the sinus, and that test should have been done for that individual. Ultimately, it was done at the hospital. I think that what's happening is there has been a severe rationing of tests because of a concern that we wouldn't be able to test people in intensive care units. My strong recommendation to our Department of Health, who are working very hard, and all providers out there, is to get the test now. We should max out our testing every single day in this brief last window before we have the private sector come on. I've spoken with all of our labs each and every day, including today twice, to make sure that they expedite it immediately. That was Lieutenant Governor Josh Green talking about the testing for the uh, corona virus COVID-19 at a news conference earlier today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kumu Kahua Theater. The historical drama, The Conversion of Ka'ahumanu, explores the Queen's personal journey towards adoption of Christianity. Opens Thursday, March 19th, kumukahua.org. HPR's Kuvei Urishi was on hand for a legislative briefing about the situation with the financially troubled Sandwich Isles on the eve of a federal uh, court auction for its assets. Uh, she joins us this morning with the update. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, so Sandwich Isles Communications, uh, for those who might not uh, have remembered that name or haven't seen it in the news recently, this was uh, the once uh, exclusive licensee to operate uh, or to offer telecommunication services to Hawaiian homelands. Uh, mainly, uh, I think, what started out in the mid-90s as a as a, uh, a desire to reach some of the more uh, rural communities that are homesteaders uh, that did not have access to uh, telecommunication services, internet and whatnot. Right, in and, the, and the idea was that these were remote rural exactly, areas. Exactly, that would be uh, maybe uh, harder to serve, but also more expensive for the traditional companies that were uh, in operation at the time. So the idea at the time was that, okay, we'll start this new company. Uh, to serve these communities, but um, and what had happened is what um, would uh, be done through the I think it was the Universal uh, Service Fund under the FCC under the Federal Communications uh, Commission. This money that would be taken out of our you know our telephone bills and our internet bills would go a little bit on, uh, on each dollar would go towards this fund to serve rural communities, and that money would be uh, given then to Samojas Communications to uh, serve this particular uh, group of people. Over time, um, we have seen, I think the founder, Albert He, uh, was found guilty in 2015 of federal tax fraud for embezzling some of that money, about $2.75 million. Um, He had docked as as business expenses were actually personal expenses, and so he uh, did his time in court, but that in prison, but that whole situation is sort of unraveling uh, right now. Right, because the FCC took some steps to cut off 
the, the gravy train because these were federal funds. Right. Uh, and, you know, he did pay his time. He was released from jail. Uh, uh, but the concern was what he paid, what he used the money for, right? Right. There were right. like $90,000 in massages, massages college and tuition, tuition for the right. kids. Um, but all of that, the, the knowing all of that happened, the Sam- Samuel Jaws Communications is still uh, operating. They are still serving uh, homesteaders. About 3,600 uh, Hawaiian homelands beneficiaries have service with Samuel Jaws Communications. But Samuel Jaws Communications is also a party to uh, two federal lawsuits or ongoing active cases right now. And so the uncertainty and one of the motivations for legislators wanting an update on what's going on is because of the 3,600 uh, Hawaiian homelands beneficiaries who are uncertain about the future of their service with these two uh, court cases uh, going on. So I wanted to kind of update folks. Uh, Ryan Kanaka Ole with the State Attorney General's office gave the official update on the cases. We should uh, say that uh, the Department of Hawaiian Homelands and the state are not parties to the lawsuit. This is uh, in one, Samuel Jaws Communications is being taken to court by the federal government for about $129 million of unpaid loans uh, and debt. So that's one case. And then in another, a bankruptcy case for a, um, I guess, a, a business partner, if you will, Paniolo Cable Company, uh, owns the infrastructure, the under um, undersea cables, fiber optic cables uh, that Samuel Jaws was using to deliver. It's service uh, statewide. The Samuel Giles is also, I think, in debt about $250 million to Paniolo Cable Company. So the recent auction that you were speaking about was uh, to auction off some of uh, Samuel Giles' assets to pay for that 250 that it owes to Paniolo Cable Company. And so uh, Kanako Ole, who I mentioned earlier, was giving uh, legislators an update on uh, not only the auction for Samuel Giles, but a possible auction for Paniolo Cable Company as well. In this past December, the bankruptcy court entered a judgment against Sandwich Isles um, in favor of the trustee, and there was a judgment lien for uh, over $256 million against uh, Sandwich Isles Communication. To collect on that $256 million judgment debt, the trustee for Paniolo petitioned the, bank- the bankruptcy court for an execution sale on uh, some of Sandwich Isles Communications assets. Now again, Sandwich Isles Communications and Paniolo are two separate companies. They have, you know, different assets. As for Paniolo's assets in this bankruptcy, that those assets are also um, set for bankruptcy sale. So what makes this uh, sort of something to uh, keep an eye on is that those assets include that under, um, you know, undersea cable, net fiber optic cable network that either Spectrum or Charter Communications and or Hawaiian Telecom can bid on once up for auction, which would mean uh, greater infrastructure for those companies. And I know there was concern by the U.S. Attorney's Office that these different companies uh, were really part of his family, right? There were connections with his Right. So technically, Paniolo Cable Company was uh, owned by his children. Right. Uh, on paper. So there is there, there is that as well. Uh, but it sort of seems to be this debt that everyone's trying to collect on that is keeping these companies wrapped up in court proceedings. So th- what was the line of questioning then from the lawmakers about uh, um, what's going to happen? Right. So uh, Senator uh, Y.N.I. Senator Miley Shimbukuro, head of the Hawaiian Affairs Committee, had uh, posed questions because she had been hearing from her beneficiaries or her uh, constituents, beneficiaries of Hawaiian homelands, that uh, the service wasn't quite uh, up to par and that they wanted to get out of using Sandwich Isles and maybe getting Spectrum service as well. I mean, if if, if Sandwich Isles hasn't been paying Paniolo and Paniolo is the one providing the infrastructure and if Sandwich Isles is being saying they haven't paid $129 million to the federal government, then I can see why there's probably not people answering the phone, and, <laughs> and that, you know, if there are cell towers that are supposed to be operating, they're probably not operating, and this just seems like, it's, it's just like a complete, you know, fiasco. Fiasco, good word. <laughs> right, and then that was probably a, a, a very, the laugh was not, it, it, it was not a funny hearing, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was actually a, a breath of sigh of relief for a lot of folks who were very, it was a very tense 
um, I think, update on what's going on because of all this uncertainty. Uh, but uh, the Department of Hawaiian Homelands did have their new uh, deputy director, Tyler Gomes, uh, in on the hearing to um, reassure uh, legislators and uh, constituents or beneficiaries of Hawaiian homelands that they are keeping an eye on things. They are not party to these uh, lawsuits, but they're trying to keep an eye on things. So whenever any sort of transition does happen for the services that uh, home centers might not uh, be affected by that. We have no reason to believe that communication should be interrupted, but I would say that we are making every effort to keep an eye on the situation despite not being a party to it in order to prevent any possibility that service is disrupted. So right now it's it's figuring out what the outcome of uh, both of these lawsuits uh, will be. And I think that's going to have a bearing on the future. Right. I mean, I recall doing stories years ago, and the biggest complaint was, you know, why are we paying more money for slower service compared <laughs> to, you know, what they could get with the cable companies in, in the in the areas, let's say, out in Kapolei where it was available. Right. And uh, for a long time, DHL uh, couldn't really answer that question. <laughs> Uh, until they got a judgment, you know, clarifying that situation. Um, and I know uh, Hawaiian Telecom, I think, was kind of waiting in the wings, but they're in the middle of, of a sale, too, so lots of uncertainty. I think, yeah, I think we'll see more of the other companies coming in to take, um, to offer the service to the other homesteaders as Samuel Giles Communications and Paneolo Cable Company kind of start to phase out. Okay, something to watch because it's uh, big money we're talking about, big money right. for everybody. Thanks so much. Mahalo. We have been talking with HPR's Kuve Hiraishi about the latest twist with Sandwich Isles and the concern about the federally subsidized service on Hawaiian homelands. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ala Moana Center, welcoming 2020, the Year of the Rat, with cultural activities and performances today through 5 p.m. Event details at alamoanacenter.com. Learning differences can make education much more difficult for students, but there are techniques that can help. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with representatives from Asset School about how they adapt their environment to help students of all ages do their best. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Honolulu Civil Beat has been closely tracking bills related to raising the minimum wage. Reporter Blaze Lovell joins us this morning for our reality check. Hi there. Morning, Catherine. So where do things sit as we've hit the halfway mark? So lawmakers just passed that minimum wage bill. It, reached, it moved past that halfway mark. And this story on examining how minimum wage increases in the past affected businesses, it kind of came up because, you know, we saw this increase, this $13 increase at the start of session. And we recalled in 2014 when a lot of businesses came out and opposed it, we thought, well, what happened to those businesses? And in fact, a lot of the businesses that opposed it in the past are still around. And some of their concerns about rising costs and, you know, how are they going to pay their employees? Those are all relevant. But we found that minimum wage increases alone don't necessarily have a huge impact, a huge negative impact on businesses. Well, and, and I know a lot of the folks have been saying, gosh, $13, it should be 15 right? I mean, some folks just want it to go higher sooner. Exactly. And in fact, the legislature and Governor David Ige even pushed um, last session for a $15 increase. Uh, a lot of folks think that the $13 figure came as a compromise between the business community and the legislature because the ledge wants to raise minimum wage. But the businesses have always said, well, no, we have to keep it low so we can keep paying people, keep people employed. If we have to raise it, we'll have to cut hours. We'll have to raise costs. And that's actually part of what the story addresses is that, you know, while costs might have risen, typically there isn't a huge negative impact on on things like employment or or all the things that businesses usually worry about. So you have to wonder, mm, were they crying wolf? I mean, who did you reach out to? What did, what did you find out? Well, we reached out to a couple of companies, and they weren't necessarily crying 
wolf, but usually the if there are negative effects, they aren't as bad as you usually think. You know, we always hear, oh, your Simon's going to go up from 10 bucks to $12. And, you know, even if food prices increase, people typically will still go out to eat. The most common concern we heard from businesses, though, is that even if they already pay above the minimum wage, they'll have to raise their pay scale even higher because they want to stay competitive. So it's not necessarily about their own employment numbers. They're kind of worrying more about the competition, and it's about making sure that they can keep attracting workers or keep their own workers happy and working for them. Yeah, and we've got a situation with low unemployment. Mm-hmm. And that that's one of the concerns that you know the, the businesses have had. And in fact, a state study we looked at as part of this story uh, found that... Um, Minimum wage increases haven't led to higher unemployment. So one of the worries and concerns that folks, business owners have is that maybe they'll have to cut staff. But uh, uh, looking at the labor market in Hawaii as a whole, it doesn't look like that seems to be the case. And we also heard from small businesses from a lot of restaurants that, oh, we're going to have to cut hours. Right. Uh, Another worry that the study uh, addressed and uh, typically... In economics world, I guess, uh, when a business cuts uh, hours, if the employee is still making the same amount, it's actually considered a net benefit because they're working less but still making the same amount of money. And so uh, we, we've we heard that this is a compromise, this $13 uh, an hour, $13 an hour, uh, an hour uh, hike, uh, because they may be other, there may be other tax cuts to kind of offset the impact, right? Exactly. Part of the legislators' uh, big joint package that they unveiled this year, it's to give uh, about $75 million worth of tax relief to the very poor by making a certain state um, income tax credit um, refundable, meaning that you could get more money back at the end of the year. Uh, but there is a pretty low cutoff point for that. Uh, I think the highest is, is, say you're a family of four, um, you couldn't make more than fifty-six thousand dollars. So it's for the very, you know, for the very uh, a low income. Okay, but we will have to see though what comes out in the wash because you never know what will happen in conference committee, right? <laughs> right. We all know bills always get chopped up and sent away. And in fact, the last minimum wage proposal died in conference committee last year. So it's definitely something we'll be paying attention to. Yeah, but uh, lawmakers seem united. They're going to pass something out, right, and, and hike it in some way. Just question is how much and and what kind of impact will it really have on the businesses? Yeah, and we're hearing that it's going to stay at that $13 an hour figure no matter um, how much lobbying goes on. They're probably not going to change that. Okay, all right. We'll keep an eye on that one. Thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's Reality Check. Read his story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kahilu Theater on Hawaii Island, presenting Cree singer-songwriter Buffy St. Marie, performing 7 p.m. Saturday, April 4th. Tickets at kahilutheater.org. My name is Tony Lim, owner of Tony Lim CPA, and we're proud underwriters of Hawaii Public Radio. I've listened to HPR for a while, so I just wanted to reach out to like-minded listeners in Hawaii. We had some uh, new clients. They've mentioned that they've heard us, and it's been great for us. We've been totally happy with the team. You know, I think it's a win-win situation for both parties. Hawaii Public Radio Underwriting. Your message heard here. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. David Hiranaka on Hawaii Island, dedicated to providing aesthetically tailored eyelid, facelift, and rhinoplasty surgery, online at a-new-face.com. Rachel Louise Snyder is the author of several books. Her most recent is entitled No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us. And it's been on the New York Times bestseller list since it was released last year. The book is about domestic violence and the soaring rates of violent cases in this country. For starters, it it comes from a piece I did for The New Yorker on traumatic brain injury and strangulation. 
in domestic violence victims. And so that was a kind of narrower view, obviously. But what you what you learn when you're studying a strangulation or, or traumatic brain injury, particularly with domestic violence victims, is that most of the time there's nothing visible that you can see when you're looking for physical injuries, right? You can't see someone's traumatic brain injury. Um, but you also can't see someone's uh, control over another person's life. You can't see someone's fear. There's all these intangibles that exist around domestic violence. And we always, you know, we're, whether we're law enforcement or, or whatever, we're always looking for the obvious. We're always looking for a bruise. You know, we're always looking for an injury of some sort. And by doing that, it's really like, you know, the forest through the trees kind of thing. You don't, you don't see the bigger picture. In my book, I talk about a man who at one point went, they lived in Montana, and he went to the outskirts of Montana, and he got a rattlesnake, and he brought it home, and he kept it in a cage in his house, and he told his, his wife that he was going to put it in bed with her or put it in the shower with her if she did anything to upset him. No, no visible injury is necessary in order to control someone in a situation like that. But the cruelty, yeah. the mental cruelty. Yeah, it's, it's absolute terrorism. You know, there, one of the things I found in my, in my book is that the they've done brain scans now of um, domestic violence victims who are under this kind of tyranny, really, like familial tyranny, and their brain scans mirror those of prisoners of war. Wow. Talk about your experiences then as you, you know, worked as a journalist and saw all these things. You know, I had been doing, I'd been a foreign correspondent for years. I lived in London. I lived in Cambodia. I, I've traveled widely. And I had done what I considered back in the 90s, what, I, what we called women's issues. <laughs> we know a little better now, partially thanks to Hillary Clinton. We now know to call them human rights issues, for example. So I had done stories on child brides in various countries. I had done stories on gang rape as sport in places like Cambodia. I had done women imprisoned for love crimes in Kabul and, you know, this all kinds of stories like this. And domestic violence really was a sort of shadowy background in all these stories, so much so that I didn't even, it really wasn't even on my radar. It was like, oh, of course that, that 13-year-old girl in Niamey who just got married off to a 45-year-old man is, is beaten by him. But that's not the story. The story is child marriage, right, or whatever. And it wasn't until I moved back to the U.S. after living abroad for, for a number of years and met a woman named Suzanne DeBuse who had been working on developing a way to predict domestic violence homicide in order to prevent it. And she was using the 20, these 20 high-risk indicators that, that are things like strangulation, access to a gun, beatings while pregnant, forced sex. There's a lot of markers. Uh, this just blew me away, and it blew me away for several, several reasons. One was that I realized as a, as a you know, feminist, educated feminist who traveled the world, that I was buying into a set of myths. I didn't realize I was buying into, like that if things were bad enough, victims were just free to leave. I didn't know that they weren't. And number two, that if I didn't know about it, it meant that the system that I was primarily involved in, which was the media, was not getting this story right. And so my book is an attempt to correct my system in a well, sense. We're just coming off of International Women's Day, and there were protests around the world and and concern about the backlash from the Me Too movement. How do you view all of that? Having lived outside of America for so long, International Women's Day is a big deal. Like in Cambodia, for example, I mean, this year it was on a Sunday, but in Cambodia, it is a holiday. It is a day off. You said protests around the world. That's true. There were protests around the world. In the U.S., not so much. In the U.S., we might post it on Twitter. That's about it. I mean, it it just goes by without a without a uh, a whisper. And I think that to me, that illuminates part of the problem. We are, in theory, anyway, a global leader. And look at what we do with this day that around the world is recognized as a holiday, but not here. So, do you think we're in denial? <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. I think I think we've been in denial for four hundred <laughs> years. <laughs> But I think, you know, I think, um, I think we have blinders on. I think we don't know what we don't know. And certainly I think there's a backlash to me, too. You know, when my book came out last May, 
right before it came out, new research was published. You can read about this in the New York Times and multiple papers that domestic violence homicides, which had been rising in this country since 2013, have been spiking since 2017, and they are up 33% in the U.S., 33%. I mean, to me, like, why are we not... Like, why are we not out there screaming about this every day? 137 women are killed every day around the world from domestic violence homicide. 137 killed on International Women's Day. Yeah, so it's an epidemic. It's a pandemic, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We look at the headlines uh, just with the virus, but, yeah, we have something in our community that is uh, equally frightening um, and violent. And violent, that's right. And, you know... There's a new UN, a report that was just put out by the UNDP, UN Development Program, last week that's been widely reported on, that not a single country in the world is on par to meet its gender equality goals by 2030. Not one. That's sad. Yeah. You know, what I, what I really want people to understand is that if they are not standing at the receiving end of a punch, that doesn't mean that domestic violence doesn't affect them profoundly. Right? It intersects. It is the leading cause of homelessness for women in this country. It's one of the leading causes of mass incarceration. When you look at, at incarcerated men, for example, you find 80% of them, roughly, have domestic violence in their backgrounds as children, either as, as victims or witnesses. When you look at women incarcerated, that number goes up to about 92% when you include sexual assaults. So when we are telling the story of poverty, when we're telling the story of gender inequality or homelessness, or mass shootings, that's another one that I could talk about for a half an hour or three hours, however much time you'll give me. When we talk about these other stories, poverty, homelessness, mass shootings, mass incarceration, we are talking about domestic violence, and that's what I want people, lawmakers, the judiciary, uh, clergy, your neighbor, that's what I want people to understand. We were talking with Rachel Louise Snyder, author of No Visible Bruises, this morning. She's in town for a talk tonight at 5.30 at the Johnny Burns School of Medicine. It is part of the University of Hawaii's Better Tomorrow Speaker Series. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines, serving Hawaii since 1929, offering nonstop service to 13 North American cities. Reservations at HawaiianAirlines.com. America, are we ready? Six more states in the South, Midwest, and West have their say in picking the Democratic challenger to President Trump from a much narrowed field. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Join me and listeners from around the country for a national call-in special on this big day in the election year. The time to listen and participate is now. Call in with your thoughts on the candidates and the state of our country. America, are we ready? Tuesday afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. The news that we lost among SEAL due to the disease toxoplasmosis was devastating to the volunteers and staff at the Marine Mammal Hospital in Kona. The young SEAL named Sole was a fan favorite to many of a group of volunteers at the center as he was the first marine mammal that they got to nurse back to health. So they took the news of his death hard. The Keolakai Center is also watching uh, another SEAL with the disease, which is spread by cat feces. Pohaku was critically ill and has been at the center for several weeks now. We talked to Dr. Kara Field and Megan McGinnis of the center about her progress in coping with the loss of the young seal, Sole. So he came to us after a pup switch situation on Kalapapa, Molokai, and he was he was an awfully skinny little little guy, you know, less than a month old. So he was pretty tiny, but yeah, he was separated from his mom when he first came in uh, in July of 2018. Was this the first one that we've lost to Toxo? 
Um, you know, as far as we know, you know, a lot of our animals are in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, so we don't have quite as good coverage on them as we do for animals, for example, like Solan Pahaku on, um, on Oahu. So as far as I know, that's the case. So Dr. Carfield, can you, I guess, give us an update on Pohaku? We actually just had Pohaku in hand again today, um, and we have been... We have now been treating her for toxoplasmosis for a total of six weeks, and that uh, treatment plan was in accordance with what we know about treating toxoplasmosis in uh, humans and in other species. She has lost a considerable amount of weight um, since being in hand, but that's okay because she had a lot of reserves. She was in very good body condition when she... Um, first presented, and she has made quite a significant recovery in many ways. She is much more responsive, much more bright, um, much more alert. What toxoplasma does is cause severe inflammation of the brain to a point where she's almost unresponsive, and in her case, she's shown a really good response to the treatment. She has not had a great appetite, so we have been supplementing her with some food, as well as the medication and a lot of other supportive care. And we've seen a real improvement in her neurologic condition. How weak is she? Because the, the stories that I was reading, she was pretty bad. Indeed, yeah. She, um, she was very close to the point of probably not being able to recover her from this. She's still weaker than she should be for a seal of her size and age, but uh, again, she's made really good strides. She is able to swim and, and swims regularly um, every day around the pool pretty strongly. Um, she's much more resistant to us handling her, as I think Megan can also attest. <laughs> she's uh, <laughs> she every, every day she seems to get just a little bit stronger and a little bit um, more appropriate for a seal of her size. Now, I think when I last talked to Claire Simeon, she was talking about the fish milkshakes that you folks were feeding Soleil, I think, to kind of get his strength back up. Yeah, Megan, do you want to handle that one? Yeah, I was covered in fish milkshake just about an hour ago. <laughs> okay. So I certainly can speak to that. Okay. <laughs> we are currently supplementing Pohaku with, with a fish milkshake at this time. Um, it's, a, it's a good way for us to be able to deliver her some extra calories, um, some extra hydration mixed in there, as well as a, an easy way to get her some of her medications. Uh, what's the, the, the prognosis for Pohaku at this point? How long of a recovery do you think this might be? That is definitely a, a really good question, and she really is the first Hawaiian monk seal that we've treated successfully to this point for toxoplasmosis, and, and I, I I put sort of quotes around successfully because so far it really just means she's survived to this point, and that is the longest that we've ever had a Hawaiian monk seal survive with this condition. That being said, she's not cleared. She's not out of the woods yet, and we're in very uncharted territory as far as what this means for her long term. Given that she's got many of her mental faculties back where she's very aware and alert, and appropriately responsive. Those all bode very well for her um, continuing to improve, but she's not at her normal strength. Um, we do still see some sort of general weakness um, in everything, and, and that is probably going to continue to take some time to heal. Um, with the amount of inflammation that was probably happening in her brain, that does not just resolve you know, over a short period of time. That's, that's something that's going to take quite a while for her to really be back to being a normal seal. Um, and at this point, it's unclear if she's going to need a much longer treatment or if she's going to just continue to improve um, just with time and with healing. So, so it's, it's, it's difficult to say overall what um, the outcome will be still at this point. She's still, um, we would still consider her to have a guarded prognosis for a full recovery, which means that, you know, she would be, have a normal, completely normal mentation and be able to be released. We are certainly hopeful um, at this point, based on her response to treatment, that we could ultimately re release her. Um, but that is something that we will need more time to know for sure. The good news is that in order to facilitate examining her, we have had to sedate her um, to get her <laughs> at a level where we can safely handle her. So that, that, that alone speaks really well to her progress. So how big is she? And how old is she again? Um, Pohaku, I believe, is 14 years old. Thank you, Megan. <laughs> 
Well, do, do we have a handle on on how toxoplasmosis affects, you know, older versus younger monk seals? That is an excellent question, and I don't think we have a good knowledge of that at this point. It does seem to affect female monk seals more than males, and that is definitely of concern because they are the uh, they are the sex that is going to pop for us and provide you know continued support for the population. Um, it, it's unclear at this point if there's a particular age that is affected. I think Megan, correct me if I'm wrong, but Soli was maybe the youngest to be diagnosed with it. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure, but he was. I mean, he was quite young. He was born in July of 2018. He is definitely one of the younger ones, and I believe most of the other ones that have been found have been older, at least sub-adult, if not adult females. So I don't know if you can talk about how toxo affects humans, you know, versus monk seals. I mean, we know folks that may have miscarried because of toxoplasmosis. In one case, to someone suffered temporary blindness. So, you know, those are the effects on humans. So what happens with monk seals? That is another excellent question because we are still um, struggling to understand what all those effects are. And certainly, just as with people, we can see neurologic, neurologic disease, and we suspect that toxoplasmosis could cause, can cause abortion in seals as well. Um, but we have not, I don't think we have actual proof of that yet, necessarily. Um, but certainly, when, when you get an adult seal that's affected with toxoplasma, it, it, has a, it definitely has a very strong effect on the brain, and all the effects on the rest of the body have not been probably fully characterized, especially as far as pregnancy goes. So I think that's an area that we still need to understand before we can really say if it affects seals in the exact same way as humans, but it is it's certainly a high risk for, for causing reproductive failure in those females. And have we reached out to any other place across the globe where they've got seals that may be affected by toxoplasmosis? We have seen this uh, condition affect um, harbor seals um, on the west coast of the United States um, for many, many years. Um, and while those seals, harbor seals in particular, we have also, I believe it's also been documented on, on seals on the east coast of the United States. It has been reported in a couple other species around the world, both seals and sea lions. And we do know that there are some marine mammal species, including sea otters in California, that are strongly affected by increased amount of toxoplasmosis in the environment, and they're getting it through their food. And in other populations of marine mammals that are naive to having cats in their area, such as um, cats are also an introduced species in New Zealand, for example. And the increased toxoplasma and the runoff there is affecting a local dolphin population. So we, we do know we are we're very aware of this pathogen affecting marine mammals, both naive, like the Hawaiian monk seal, and animals that have sort of evolved with cats on the mainland, for example, and with very, very similar results. None, no marine mammal species has been documented to really be adapted to, to dealing with this, this threat in their environment, and very few reports of, of successful treatment of toxoplasma in any of these species, too. That was going to be my next question, is how do we treat it exactly? Do you treat it the same way you treat humans? We are treating it with very similar drugs. The human literature is pretty thorough and pretty well investigated regarding treatment. There is has been some research on treatment in other uh, non, non-human species, so both in the laboratory and also in non-domestic, or sorry, in a number of domestic species. So we, we have done a very thorough literature searches and have reached out to our colleagues and in other parts of the veterinary and the human medical field to find out what new advances there are in treatment, whether any of those other drugs are available yet, um, and how we can prevent this, if this is something that we can prevent in future, in addition to treating currently. And uh, most of all the drug regimens that are currently available are ones that are are still actively the the most widely used and the the most considered to be the most effective in human medicine. So those are the drugs that we are using to treat Pohaku currently. And Megan, do you know how many other monk seals that we've lost to Toxo? Um, My understanding is that the count is around 12. Unfortunately, these 
like this illness is avoidable. And if people are, you know, practicing responsible pet ownership and we start having more awareness of our feral cat problem on these islands, then I think that we can start to make a dent in the, you know, in the way that this disease is affecting our wildlife. I mean, it's not only real that's been found in dolphins here, it's been found in the Hawaiian crow. So, you know, just this feral cat population is having a really large effect on our wildlife and there's things that we can do about it. So we need to start the conversation around how do we manage these colonies or get them away from our shorelines or, or somehow limit what's going into the oceans. I know it's a, uh, it's a difficult conversation with a lot of angles in it, but we have to start having it if we want to make a difference in this problem. Because, yeah, we're down to what? Is it 1,100? Um, it's, it's around 300 in the main Hawaiian Islands and around 1,100 in the Northwestern Islands. So that's only 1,400 animals. Yeah, left on the planet. That is pretty scary. I think something that's really huge is, you know, one of the reasons that I hope that we were able to to make a difference early on is because when people were seeing these animals in the wild, they were reporting it to their local response hotline. So when anyone sees these animals, if they have any concerns, calling those response hotlines uh, is the thing that's going to get us rolling on observing the animal and hopefully treating them sooner rather than later. So it's something that our whole community can pitch in on. Um, I think what, what Megan said is, is I just wanted to underscore that again, is that uh, responsible pet ownership and working hard to keep your, your cats indoors and uh, make sure that they're spayed and neutered so they're not out there creating more more cats to contribute to the problem. Another thing that you can do if you're a cat owner is use litter that's not the flushable kind of litter because that also can go straight into the water environment. And exactly what Megan just said, just reiterating the vigilance is, is really important to, for us to, for all of us to be able to respond to these animals and as, as quickly as we can if, if there's any abnormal behavior. So continuing to, to call in when they see animals that are maybe acting abnormally and not being very responsive, especially, and then making sure that they sit back and leave them be and call in the appropriate people to come and, and manage that animal. All right. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for the work that you do in nursing these monk seals back to health. Thanks again. Thank you very much. That was a conversation we had with Dr. Cara Fields and Megan McGinnis of the Marine Mammal Center, Kai Keola, on the Big Island. They were talking about the latest monk seal victims of toxoplasmosis, which is a disease spread by cat feces. For links, head to our website. You know, we have to go now, but up tomorrow we talk about Hawaii's cruise industry as new protocols are about to be rolled out. Caller Talk Back Line, leave us your comments, leave us your stories about the cruise uh, issues at 808-792-8217 is the number. You can also reach us on the internet, email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org and look for us on social media. I'm Catherine Cruz, join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.